Whoever wrote Hebrews, we're not totally sure, is writing a letter that's extolling how great Jesus is in comparison to everything else. And when he gets to the end of his letter, he begins to write some instructions on how Christians are to live. So I'm going to begin in verse 7 of Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 7. This is what Holy Scripture says. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now, may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I've written to you briefly. You should know that our dear brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I want to begin this morning by telling you two stories, two real life stories. And a few of you have heard uh, these stories before, but I share them again because I think they teach us an important lesson. The first story has to do with a church in our very own province. Uh, several years ago, I heard the story about a church that hired a new senior pastor, but the problem was many of the regular attenders didn't really have a good idea of this individual who was coming in. They had mixed feelings about him, and the more time passed, the more the people wanted him gone. 
Eventually, some of the long-standing attenders of the church called for a vote to remove this pastor from office, and this vote was to take place the next Sunday during their morning service. Now, it's important to understand that this church didn't have any kind of formal church membership. And it's also important to understand that this church was geographically located in a small town where they had a lot of visitors and tourists who were coming through, coming and going. And so the Sunday rolls around. The church is filled with both long-standing attenders, but also first-time visitors who were just visiting for the day. And the time for the vote came. Guess who was voting on the removal of the pastor? Basically, anyone and everyone who was in attendance on that Sunday, it could have been their very first time visiting without any real understanding of the context or situation. They were allowed to vote whether or not this pastor was allowed to stay. To this church, anyone who was physically present in the building on a given time was considered a part of the church, and the result, the motion passed, and this pastor was removed from office. True story number one. The second story is about a church in the United States. Mike McKinley, he's the pastor of Sterling Park Baptist Church in Virginia. He wrote a great little book called Church Planting is for Wimps. Anybody read that book before? Church Planting is for Wimps? It's a great little story. It's a, it's a book basically, um, it, it's really a testimony of Mike's experience revitalizing this dying church. In one part of the story, during the early years of his ministry in this new church, he, he talks about meeting a guy who would come in the church parking lot almost every day during his lunchtime to take a nap. And this one particular day, Mike finally found the dude outside of his car just looking for something in his trunk. trunk. So Mike decided to approach him and talk to him. He wanted to build a relationship with him and uh, eventually tell him about Jesus Christ and invite him to come out to church. Now, it didn't take long for Mike to realize that this guy was, he was pretty rough around the edges. Based on what he was saying and the way he was acting, it was very clear that he was a bit of a racist. Uh, he spent some time in and out of jail, and he was a drinker. And you could smell the stench of cheap bourbon that was coming off of him. And then near the end of this conversation, Mike finally got to the point where he mentioned he was the new pastor of this church. And to his surprise, this man lit up and he said, oh yeah, I'm a member of your church. I was baptized there when I was eight years old. Yep, I've been a member of Guilford Baptist Church for over 30 years. Just to be clear, this guy said he hasn't been in a church building for decades. Just because he was once baptized and he grew up in that church years ago, he was under the assumption that he belonged to the church. At this point, this church had no membership, which left people like him confused for years and decades about who was actually a part of the church and who wasn't. Now, I share these stories with you because, number one, they're real-life stories. They've actually taken place. But they're also very good examples of some of the dangers that can come when there isn't some kind of recognized and formalized local church membership in place. This morning, we're continuing our series on the church, and right now, we're in that part of the series where we're taking the time to talk about local church membership. Local church membership means and 
individual Christian formally committing to an identifiable local body of believers who have joined together to worship and serve the Lord. Now, two weeks ago, if you were here, you heard Pastor Paul preach on the job description of every church member. Every member of the church has been given a God-given responsibility to guard the what and the who of the gospel, the what and the who. According to Matthew 18, the, the keys of the kingdom are given to the church, and therefore the church as a whole is to ensure that the true gospel is being preached and that only true gospel-believing Christians are affirmed as members of the church meaning the church is given the final authority here on earth to bind and to loose. And so, if you weren't here two weeks ago and you don't know what I'm talking about, then I would strongly encourage you to please go and listen to that sermon from two weeks ago. It's important that every Christian know their God-given responsibility, the what and the who of the gospel. Now, today, all I want to do is talk about the why question. Why local church membership? If you've been at our church for some time now, then you know that we make a pretty big deal about becoming a formal member of a local church. We talk about it often. We regularly teach it on a bi-monthly basis. We're constantly encouraging those of you who are Christians and not yet members to join as members of this church or another gospel-preaching, Bible-believing church. So it's not hard to see that we really, really, really care about local church membership. Now, to be honest, this is a bit of a controversial topic today. There are many objections and, and many reasons why people don't pursue it. The big one being, some people argue that you don't see local church membership in the Bible. It's not commanded in the Bible. Others talk about how they're part of the universal and the invisible church, so it's not necessary to be a part of a local church. There are others who have had bad church experiences in the past, and so they keep their distance. And there are still others who just don't like the idea of any kind of formal commitment and covenant. It just, it sounds a little too intensive. It, it sounds a little too restrictive. It tends to grind against the culture of individualism today. So why do we do it? Why do we make such a big deal about local church membership? Why spend two or three Sundays preaching about church membership? Well, a simple answer is this. We preach and we practice local church membership because we ultimately believe the Bible teaches it. We ultimately believe the Bible teaches it in such a way that it's not optional, but it is necessary for all of God's people. And the reason for this is because you cannot fully, keyword there, fully live out all of God's commands without becoming a formal member of a church. Don't get me wrong, you can obey many commands in the Bible, but I don't think you can really obey all the commands without some form of local church membership. And that's what I want to spend the bulk of our time trying to show you in the Bible today. Now, when I say that the Bible teaches local church membership, that doesn't mean you're going to find a chapter or a verse explicitly written in the Bible that says, thus says the Lord, as a Christian, you must become a member of a local church. 
The, the word membership in the context of local church membership is not found explicitly anywhere in the Bible. But I want you to think about it. Neither are words like Trinity or the triune God or the divinity and deity of Christ. And yet we believe that the Bible very clearly teaches us that God is triune. He is God. He is one, three, one and in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We believe that Jesus is truly a human being and truly God. And as a matter of fact, these doctrines of the Trinity and the divinity of Christ are so important that to deny it would call into question your salvation. In the same way, even though we don't see the word membership in the Bible, that doesn't mean the concept or the idea isn't there. As a matter of fact, I would argue that a careful reading of the Bible would show that local church membership is constantly assumed and implied in the New Testament. Now, almost every Christian believes that the moment a person is saved, they become, what is a part, they become a part of what is called the universal or the invisible church, the capital C, the big C church. Every Christian from every generation and every place is part of this one invisible church, the body of Christ, and that is a glorious truth. I could call the Christians in South Korea, in Russia, in Ukraine, in Nigeria, in Brazil, and all across the world, I can truly call them my brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, in order to be a member of this universal church, one must turn away from their sins and believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins and rose again. If you truly believe in the good news of the gospel, then the Bible says you will be saved you will be delivered from condemnation and death. You will be forgiven and given the gift of eternal life, and you will be a part of this glorious and beautiful universal church. And that is all a work of God's grace. But here's the question. How is that global, universal kingdom of Jesus Christ seen in the world today? How, how do we know it exists how are unbelievers supposed to witness this new kingdom of Jesus Christ and his followers? And that's where the small C church, the assembly of local churches come in. Small C churches are a visible and tangible manifestation of that global, spiritual, and heavenly reality. Jonathan Lehman has a helpful way of illustrating this in his little blue book called Church Membership. It's a small blue book in the Nine Mark series. In that book, he talks about the local church metaphorically being like an embassy in a foreign land. So, for example, the Canadian embassy in South Korea is physically in South Korea. It's within the borders of South Korea, but it represents Canada, and it's there for Canadian citizens. As a matter of fact, it actually abides by Canadian laws. So, to enter into the Canadian embassy in South Korea is actually to enter into Canadian property, not South Korean property. And in the same way, the local church represents the kingdom of God here on earth, and it is in this foreign world, but it abides by kingdom laws, and it is here for believers. And these kingdom embassies are located all over the world. You look in the Bible, you can see that the universal church is physically manifested in the church in Corinth, 
the church in Galatia, the church in Thessalonica, the church in Philippi. In the book of Acts, we read about the church in Jerusalem or the church at Antioch. In the book of Revelation, we read about the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. You see these local manifestation of the universal church in the actual Bible. And you think about it in our day today, there's Grace Fellowship Church, there's Park World Bible Church, there's RYBC, NCBC, WTCBC, GCBC, all kinds of churches. That glorious spiritual reality of the universal church has always, from the beginning, been visibly seen in the world through the local assembly of God's people, which is the local church. So, with that in mind, let's go to some specific Bible passages now that help us to see that formal and recognized membership in these local churches was assumed and implied by the New Testament authors. So, here is the biblical basis for local church membership. Number one, discipline. You need to know whom to tell. So, take your Bible and turn with me to Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 20. Again, this is a passage that many of you are familiar with. It's basically the manual of how to deal with sin between uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, and it's broken down into four stages. Stage number one, if you look at Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, it says, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples, he says, if your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. This is what we call private confrontation. It's between you and that brother or you and that sister. It's private in nature. You're not involving anyone else. You're maintaining the privacy of that conversation. But if that doesn't work, then you move to stage two. Look at verse 16. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So you have private confrontation, and then stage two, you have semi-private confrontation. Now it's not his word versus my word. Now you have two or three witnesses coming and telling this brother or this sister, hey, there is sin in your life. You need to repent. It is a semi-private confrontation. And if that doesn't work, then you move to stage three, verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, the two or three, tell it to the church. Okay, at this point, you're not just involving one or two other Christians, you're now involving the whole church. But pause right there. We need to stop and ask a very important question. Who is the church? This is the Lord Jesus himself laying out the blueprint of how to deal with sin, and his instruction to his disciples is, tell it to the church in stage three. Now, if you say that the Bible only talks about the universal, invisible church, does that mean that we have to tell every single Christian in the world every time we move to stage three of corrective church discipline? Well, I'm sure you would say no. That's, that's ridiculous. Of course not. And you would be right to say that. It would be impossible for us to do that anyway. I don't know every single believer in the world. None of us do. Well, if Jesus is obviously not talking about the universal church, 
then he must be talking about some kind of localized church. But as soon as we say that, then we're also agreeing to the fact that there was some kind of discernible line to determine who was the local church as a part to who is a part of the universal church. Because the question still remains, who do you tell? Who is the church? Think about it in our context. Is it every single Christian in the city of Toronto? I don't know every single Christian in the city of Toronto. Or do we tell every single Christian in the Rexdale neighborhood? It's a little more localized, but I've got to be honest, I don't know every single Christian in the, Rexdale of na- in, in the neighborhood of Rexdale. Or do we tell every single Christian in our gathering here today, even if it's their first time attending? Well, what if they're a genuine believer and they're only visiting for one or two weeks? What if it's only a month? What if it's only two months and they're gone? Well, that doesn't sound really appropriate, does it? After all, church discipline is a very serious and sensitive spiritual matter. It seems unwise and inappropriate to allow just any person who calls themselves believers to participate in this weighty but necessary process. And and there's also the problem that we can't just take everyone's word that they're truly a believer. We know this for a fact and based on our own experience that not everyone who believes themselves to be Christians are truly believers, which means it is necessary that at the very least we have a conversation, right? That sounds fair. We're not omniscient. We don't know what's truly in the heart. We need to at least have a conversation to see whether or not they truly understand the gospel. So, even if you say something like, a person just needs to be here once, and we at least need to have just one conversation with that person in order to verify their profession of faith, what you have done in that instance is put a protocol in place to determine whether someone is a part of the church or not. Do you see that? In, in, in the illustration that I just drew out, the scenario, in, in that scenario, the protocol is super, super basic. Attend the church more than once and ask the person about their testimony. But that in itself is a protocol. It is a process nonetheless. And nowhere in the Bible do we explicitly see that we need to do that. But we recognize that we must, that every church needs some type of protocol or process in place in order to determine who is actually a part of the church and who isn't. That's not biblical in terms of the protocol of process, but it is a matter of prudence. You can't just say that everyone who is here on a Sunday morning gathering is a part of the church. And since we're not told exactly how to do this, it is important that the elders of every church figure out some kind of organized and helpful way of determining who belongs to the church. That's part of what leading entails. Elders are supposed to lead the church, and so every eldership in every church needs to determine some kind of organized and helpful way of determining who is a part of the church and who isn't. So, for us here at Grace Fellowship Church, again, as a matter of prudence, we've implemented and organized uh, a clear membership process. Now, hear me when I say this. Our membership process is not biblical. Just because other churches don't follow the same process that we do, it doesn't mean that they're in sin. 
But we've done this for 22 years now, and our process has evolved and, is, and it's developed to what it is today because we believe it truly serves the people who are coming in by giving them a clear information about our church. Think about Ephesians 4 and the importance of unity in the body of Christ. How could the church know if they can be true? How can an individual know if they can be truly united to a particular church if they don't know much about the church? And so it's serving and it's loving to have this place and this context where we can tell the individual this is who we are as a church. We also believe that it keeps unbelievers out of the fellowship. Every incoming person is therefore individually interviewed by at least one elder to initially verify whether they're truly a Christian or not. And I would have to say in my own experience, there have been some amazing gospel opportunities that have come from that. And also, this is probably the most important, it enables the church to do her God-given job of binding and loosing in an organized way by voting on new members at a members meeting. If the church is given the responsibility to bind and to loose, then we need some sort of mechanism in place in order to do that. And that's what our membership process concludes with, a members meeting where all the members vote and we bind the new Christian into the church. We affirm their profession of faith. Again, none of this in terms of the process is prescribed in the Bible, but in the realm of prudence and wisdom, every church needs to have some kind of protocol or process in place in order to determine who is inside the church and who is outside the church. Because think about it, without it, how can we possibly know if we are properly obeying the command of Christ here in Matthew 18, 17? Look carefully at that text. We are commanded to tell it to the church in stage three. Jesus doesn't say tell half the church or tell three quarters of the church. He says tell it to the church. Well, then we need to know exactly who the church is. And that's what local church membership does. It clearly defines who the church is. And it clearly helps you to know in a church discipline process who to tell in stage three of corrective church discipline. And then when you know who the church is, then it becomes clear how to practice stage four, which is the final stage. Look at verse 17 again. It says, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Meaning, if that individual doesn't repent and doesn't respond even to the rebuke of the entire church, then the final step is for that church to exclude that individual from fellowship and recognize them as an unbeliever. Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So, as a church, we tell them, Friend, we can no longer affirm the profession of your faith. And this is what for a long time has been called excommunication. Now, when people hear excommunication, some people tend to think that it means banishment from the church, as if they're never allowed in the church building again or in the gathering again. But that's not what Jesus says here. You know, every time I teach on corrective church discipline, I always tell people that actually the church is the best place for that excommunicated, unrepentant person to be because that's where they're going to hear the gospel and the call to repent of their sins. That's what their soul needs the most. They need 
friendship with Christians who are going to speak truth into their lives. So, Jesus never says anything about kicking the person out of the church. No, he is to be merely recognized as an unbeliever and therefore excluded from taking communion, which is for the Lord's people only, which is why it's called excommunication, excommunion. So, if there is this kind of exclusion, then there must be some kind of inclusion. How do you remove someone from nothing? So, this becomes even more clear when we look at our next point, excommunication. You need to know who is in and who is out. Now, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. As you're turning there, the the church in Corinth, if you've read through that letter before, you know that it's a church with many problems, one of which is found in 1 Corinthians 5. Now, here we read about a very troubling and disturbing situation within the church that the Apostle Paul addresses head on. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, you the church, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. It's come to Paul's attention that a member of the Corinthian church is engaging in a kind of heinous sin that the pagan world doesn't even tolerate. Even unbelievers would look at the situation of a son committing sexual immorality with his father's wife, and they would be absolutely repulsed by it. And so, what does Paul say in response to this situation? Verse 2, he says, "'And you are arrogant.'" Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. In other words, excommunicate him. Remove this man from the fellowship of believers. And then if you drop down to verse 12, here's the key verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12, he concludes that chapter by saying this, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. Now, there's obviously a lot going on in this chapter that I'm not going to talk about, but all I want you to see at this point right now is that in the mind of Paul, there is a clear category of those who are outside the church and those who are inside the church. There's no middle ground here. There's no fuzziness about that. There was a clear demarcating line of those who belonged to the church and those who didn't. And what's so important to understand here is that Paul is not talking about this primarily in a spatial sense. What I mean by that is he's not talking about those who were physically standing inside the church and those who were physically standing outside the church. It's not like the church doors physically made that demarcating line of those who were inside and outside. And and we know this for a fact because later on in this same letter, 1 Corinthians, you don't have to turn there, you can just listen to how Paul talks about these outsiders, it's the same word, outsiders, actually being physically present in the gathering of the saints. So, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, same letter again, There in that chapter, Paul is talking about spiritual gifts and orderly worship within the gathering of the saints. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 24, 
Paul says, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, enters where? It enters into the gathering of the saints. And an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all. So again, there's a lot going on in that context that we don't have time to talk about here. But what's important to see here is that the Apostle Paul assumed that there would be times when unbelievers and outsiders, those who are outside of the faith, would physically enter the corporate worship services of the saints. I mean, that's sort of obvious, isn't it? Think about it in our own context. Think about it in our own church. There are many churches, including our own, where in any given Sunday morning service, we have in our physical gathering those who are not Christians. So, when Paul is talking about being inside the church versus outside the church, it's not a simple delineation between those who are inside the building or inside a physical gathering and those who aren't. But even within those who are physically gathered together, there was a clear recognition of the Christians who truly belong to the church and those who didn't. And friends, that's what local church membership is. Local church membership clarifies that you are inside the church. Now, it also seems very likely that the… That it also seems likely that every church, every local church was numerically aware of who exactly was in their church. So, let's go a little bit further now into the second letter of uh, Corinthians. So, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6. Here, Paul is most likely following up on the situation from 1 Corinthians 5 about excommunicating this individual. Uh, the, the man who committed a very serious sin. And he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So, you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Now, when you look at that text, it may seem like a bit of a funny way of getting to formal church membership, but we need to consider the words of this text very carefully. Think about it and just look at it there. Paul uses the word majority. How could a church know what the majority is unless there was some kind of recognized total number of people in the church? How do you know what 51% is if there is no clear total? In order for this to make sense, you have to have some kind of clear quorum or clearly defined total to determine what is a minority vote and what is a majority vote. And not like the way the church did in my first story, because if you do something like that, then you could very easily have non-Christians voting again on some very serious and sensitive spiritual matters. The early church knew exactly who was inside the church and who was outside the church, and the demarcating line is what we call local church membership. So, we've looked at the existence of local church membership in church discipline. You need to know whom to tell. In excommunication, you need to know who is in and out. And lastly, we can see it in submission you need to know whom to obey. 
Turn with me now to the passage that Pastor Paul read for us, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, the author says, command, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Now, we can take that one single verse and we can examine it from the perspective of the congregation as well as the perspective of the leaders. So, first, from the perspective of the congregation. If you look at verse 17, the main imperative, the main command of this verse is for Christians to obey and submit to their leaders. And in the context, the passage is specifically talking about elders and pastors. These leaders are doing soul care. These leaders in verse 7 are the ones who are communicating the Word of God. That is the function of elders and pastors. So, the big question here is, who are the leaders, the elders and the pastors that you're supposed to obey and submit to. Just think about that. Again, we need to understand that this isn't a recommendation. It is a divine command. Therefore, to disobey is to be in sin. Since that's the case, and since we are called as Christians to a life of holiness and righteousness, you and I need to know exactly who our spiritual leaders are if we're going to properly obey this command. There are hundreds of pastors in our city, and there are tens and hundreds of thousands, maybe millions, of pastors in our world today, many of whom are good and godly men. In order to live a life of obedience, are you supposed to then obey every single pastor and elder in this world? Well, maybe what about the pastors just in our country or our city or the neighborhood? I mean, where do you draw the line? What happens when you have super godly pastors from one local church and another local church who have different convictions on the practice of spiritual gifts or which songs to sing or how to structure their services within the corporate worship service that are contradicting one another. What do you do in an instance like that? Who do you submit to? Because the reality is there are good and faithful Bible-believing pastors who come to very different convictions on these issues. So you can't obey every single leader, every single pastor. Look again at Hebrews 13, 17. The command is to obey your leaders and submit to them for they, the leaders, are keeping watch over your souls. Do do you see the reciprocal relationship there? There is a mutual recognition and accountability in this text. The leaders that we are called to submit to are the ones who are actively watching over your souls, meaning these leaders know who you are. These leaders know that you exist. They care for you. They minister to you, and they pray for you. Listen, just because you listen to John MacArthur sermons or you watch John Piper sermons online does not mean that they are your pastors. I I know the theology of, of these brothers well enough to know that they wouldn't consider you their sheep. Let's be honest. 
there's a very good chance that they don't even know you and I exist. If you're to obey this command faithfully, then you must know exactly who your pastors are and vice versa. Pastors need to know exactly who they are called to watch over. So let's look at it from the other perspective now, the perspective of the leaders, the pastors. Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls. There is that reciprocal relationship, but they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. One day, we as elders of Grace Fellowship Church will all stand before the judgment throne of God and give an account for the souls that were entrusted into our care. That is the weight that every elder in this church carries. And the question is, are we as elders, pastors, going to be held accountable for every single person that has walked through our church doors in the last 22 years? Are we as elders going to be held accountable for that, you know that little sneaky visitor who comes in late and then leaves before the service ends that no one notices? Are we going to be held accountable for them? I don't think so. The only way a pastor can faithfully do his job of shepherding is if there is a clear recognition of who belongs to his flock. The apostle Peter writes as an elder to fellow elders and commands them in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2, shepherd the flock of God that is, do you know, among you. Shepherd the flock of God, elders, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. There are many flocks of God in this world. There are many flocks of God even around this neighborhood. But we are not, as elders of Grace Fellowship Church, called to shepherd Rexdale Alliance Church, Covenant Reformed Church, Thistletown Baptist Church, or Royal York Baptist Church. These are the people of God around the elders of this church, but they are not the people of God among the elders of this church. There is a distinction the elders of Grace Fellowship Church are called to shepherd the flock of God that is among us here. And local church membership clearly helps us to know who exactly belongs among us. Benjamin Merkel, a New Testament professor from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, wrote this in his book, Those Who Must Give an Account. This is what he says. If this is the case meaning if, if, if pastors are going to be held accountable for the souls entrusted to their care, then it is absolutely vital for leaders to know whom they are responsible to shepherd. Are they accountable for those who attend a worship service once, twice, or for six months? The seriousness of this verse does not allow for any guesswork. This is an extremely weighty truth for a pastor. I and all the other elders cannot afford to just be casual about this. If we're going to be held responsible, if we as elders are going to give an account for every single soul entrusted to us, then we want to know exactly who was entrusted to us. And that's what local church membership does it clearly defines those lines of who is in the flock and who is not of this flock. 
So yes, we don't see the word membership explicitly written in the Bible in the context of local church membership, but we look at a number of different passages in the New Testament, and I think it's clear to see that it's regularly assumed and implied in the Scriptures. Without local church membership or some kind of formal recognition of who belongs in a particular church and who doesn't, it's difficult to know how to properly obey some of the commands that are given in the Bible. And so, in that sense, membership is a wonderful blessing because it enables us to obey God's commands. It helps us to know who to tell in stage three of church discipline. It helps the congregation to know whom they're supposed to obey and submit to, and in turn, it helps pastors to know whom they're called to shepherd. So, friends, that's why we preach, that's why we practice local church membership. We believe the Bible teaches it. We believe that it's a wonderful blessing. And if you're not a member of a local church yet, then we pray that you would truly think about this, pray about this, and pursue membership in this church or another healthy, gospel-preaching, Bible-believing local church. Let's pray. Well, Father, we do thank you for the wonderful gift of salvation and how through your saving grace you have also saved us to a family of believers that we can truly be members of the body of Christ. And so I pray, O oh Lord, that we would love the body, that we would cherish the body, that we would seek to serve the body and love the body well. Oh Lord, help us to commit to the body as we see in the local manifestation of the universal church here on earth. Lord, I just pray that for those who might be in here who are struggling and have struggled in the past about local church membership, we pray that your word would do the work. And we pray, Father, that we would do just be obedient to what your Bible says. And if we see these things to be true in your word, then give us grace to obey. Give us grace to walk in faith and to live a life that is pleasing to you. We love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that everything that we truly need to do well in this world as Christians is given in your word. Help us to study it. Help us to know it. Help us to believe it. And help us to obey it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.